This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Us touching John D.'s books. Perceiving complexity. And my latest London book haul. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. As you listen to this, it is 2016, where you're no doubt flying a jetpack and watching rocket cars, and I don't know, it's some kind of super fruit, but... For us, it is still 2015, and we are still basking in the glow of our trip to London. You may have heard our live episode, which we dropped as the final episode of 2015. But here in our first episode of 2016, we're going to go back in time. We're going to flash back to our trip to London, where we had a very special, important mission. And Ken, what was that mission? Uh, This was the mission to get to brag about our mission. (laughs) <laughs> um, and in order to properly properly conduct that mission, we had to do something so awesome, so above the rim, so fantastical that it would baffle the mind of podcast listeners, not just in boring old 2015, but also in the grandeur that is 2016. And that mission was to go to the Royal College of Physicians, where they are preparing and are still preparing, as we record this, and even as you hear it, unless you hear it late, a exhibit of the portion of the library of John D. 
that they have there at the Royal College of Physicians, and they're preparing it for public exhibition so that the uh, tourists and punters can come and, and look and gaze at the wonder of the intellectual meat that made up John Dee's mincemeat pie. And because we are us, and because uh, of the bold and noble actions of certain core uh, allies of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, we got to see the books early, and better than that, we got to touch them with our own podcaster hands. Yeah, so so this is a very special episode of The Consulting Occultist, and uh, as you alluded to, uh, we had some uh, help beyond, behind the scenes. This all started in October, when the Royal College of Physicians announced that they'd be having this John D. exhibit, and I noted the dates, and I posted it uh, to social media with the kind of uh, note, oh, drat. This will be a little too late for Ken and I to go see it as part of our Dragon Meat trip. Well, listener and game designer Alex White uh, stepped forward to uh, pull some strings. He uh, used to work at the RCP, and he contacted uh, Katie Berkwood, who is the uh, curator of this exhibit and a librarian there, and made it happen. So we got to go and personally visit some of these items before they put in the exhibit. The exhibit uh, will be called... Scholar, Courture, Magician, The Lost Library of John D. And it will run from January 18th to uh, July 29th. And judging by the preview, uh, those of you who need to be convinced to go to it and are in the London area during that period, go and see it. You know, yes. But I, I think most of our listeners, now that they know, will don't need us to tell them about it. But we will tell them about it nonetheless. Now, uh, we already have done a full segment on... John D. So if you want to uh, dial that up, that is episode 11 of our podcast. But Ken, do we want to, uh, just for those joining us in progress, want to give them the super quick uh, 101 on John D. Okay, the super, super quick 101 on John D. John D. Uh, was a, the 16th century and in the tail end of, the, uh, of his life, the 17th century, uh, mathematician, fundamentally, I think, in his own mind, that was what he was mostly. But it was an era when being a mathematician meant you were exploring the veritable uh, blueprint of the universe as designed by God. So he also thought of himself as a what was called a natural magician, the kind of magician who examined nature, God's handiwork, for the patterns God had left in it. So he was a mathematician and a maker. And because he was a mathematician, that made him a cartographer or cosmographer, which is the much cooler name that they had back then, uh, and an astrologer and all manner of other things. Because once you knew the math, just like in modern days, you the, the world of hard science is open to you. It's just the world of hard science in 1550 involved way more angels than it involves now, uh, thanks to, you know, budget cuts or the Enlightenment. So he was uh, the... Uh, to the extent that Queen Elizabeth had a court magus, uh, he was it. Um, he would sort of be called in in the occasional case where someone tried poppet magic to kill her or if she needed a horoscope to determine when the good time to be crowned was. And as Queen Elizabeth did with most people, the rest of the time he was fobbed off with promises in the occasional government job. Right. And he was also a big advocate of uh, building up the Navy and military expansion. Yes. So he coined he... the term British Empire and provided a ideological and historical justification for uh, the British sailing around and stomping on foreigners. And uh, he had a, a, a compatriot, a um, magician in, in, in arms, as it were, called uh, Edward Kelly, who sort of led him onto the continent for uh, adventures that we detail in... Uh, greater length uh, in episode 11. But uh, while he was away in Europe, he left his library at Mortlake in the charge of his brother-in-law, 
Nicholas Fremond, and uh, Nicholas was either a uh, a negligent or perhaps an actively uh, malign custodian of Dee's book collection, and therefore all sorts of Dee's friends, including uh, his former student uh, Nicholas Saunder, would uh, saunter on in to uh, check out the library, and they would leave with books without, uh, you know, signing a receipt or checking them out, or they were stealing the books. Yes, they they stole the books. It was uh, a ransacking. Yes, he had the um, uh, the one of the finest libraries in Europe. He had about three thousand volumes and uh, some unknown number of manuscripts, and he would brag about it, of course, to his friends. And as as might happen if I left America for the continent on an extended trip and left my brother-in-law in charge, it might in- actually my brother-in-law is kind of badass. But let's say I left John Dee's <laughs> brother-in-law. In charge. Yes. Um, uh, people would, would show up and say, "Oh, your books. Ken said I could have all the books about Templars, and <laughs> there they go. They're off into the the wildy woods of Arizona or somewhere." We know some people who could be very convincing about your wanting to have have them have your books on Templars. Yes, yes. Uh, there, there's a list being maintained by shadowy forces. Um, anyway, but uh, but yes, uh, among the thieves was this guy Nicholas Saunder, who was. Uh, something of a scholar, something of a gentleman, uh, certainly an awful uh, book thief because... A book-stealing gentleman, <laughs> a book-stealing as many gentlemen, gentlemen were in that, that era. And if such a thing now. is possible. Yeah. And then uh, Saunder, eventually, he was un- not one of the people who gave the books back when John Dee returned from the continent, uh, full of the wisdom of uh, not trusting Edward Kelly, but uh, not much else. And he did not give the books back. He kept them and they wound up with he even erased John D's name and wrote his own name yes, over, top over, of them. over the, over the signatures. He was a bad man. Um, and they wound up in the collection of the Marcus Marquis of Dorchester or Marquis of Dorchester, I guess, depending on what side of the channel you were on at the time, how British you want to say, how it. British you want to be. And, uh, he was a friend and patron of the Royal college of physicians, very much in the early stages of, uh, perfecting a, alumni relations and uh, donated uh, his library to the library of the Royal College of Physicians after the London fire took their library out, which had actually been the library of um, uh, William Harvey, the guy who discovered the circulation of blood and was kind of awesome in a lot of other ways. And uh, Dorchester gets to be the only non-doctor with a fancy portrait in the uh, the big library hall, which is now used as a uh, lecture hall. So munificent was his gift and it included a hundred of these uh, books that may have passed directly to him from Sondra, or maybe not. They don't quite uh, aren't able to connect that chain of custody 100. percent Yeah, it's actually the uh, there's 100 books in the exhibit, and I think there's like closer to 140 in the collection. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that's how uh, John Dee's library wound up at the Royal College of Physicians because. Although John Dee's talents were many and manifold, they did not actually include medical doctoring, as far as I know. Now, many of these books are um, mathematics uh, texts and uh, other sort of standard works of scholarship, but those aren't the ones that we touched. No, because uh, we got to pick. <laughs> yes. So, Ken, uh, do you want to run us through the different uh, uh, books that uh, we asked Katie Berkwood to uh, pick a few that she found really interesting, and then you uh, a- had some requests? So what did we paw through? Uh, We began with a uh, sort of a Christomathy of the works of Raymond Lull, who was a 12th century Balearic Kabbalist and mathematician. 
Um, again, roughly the same sort of thing at that time. How many of those terms do you care to define? <laughs> uh, he was from the Balearic Islands in the Mediterranean. The 12th century is the 1100s. A Kabbalist is someone who utilizes the inherent insights of number and word to uh, understand uh, the covert expressions of, of uh, God and mathematician. Well, you know what that is. So, Crestomathy. Crestomathy. Oh, it's a collection of unrelated works uh, put together under one cover for convenience sake. Yes, none of the listeners really needed that, but I thought I'd just throw that in. You just so, wanted to say crest uh, So this is a small uh, uh, volume, a little, a little sort of quick reference. It is it technically were. an opusculum, as it is called on the title page, meaning a little book. And uh, like uh, I think all of the other books, we saw, first of all, where uh, earlier generations of RCP librarians had sort of uh, written things in it and stamped it the way they would not today. We also saw that uh, the places where the name of John D was uh, carefully uh, most, removed, <laughs> mostly erased, but still visible. Uh, and uh, what did you uh, take away from this particular volume? And the other thing that uh, we saw in all these books is uh, that John D, because this was a working library, not a showing off library, he filled the margins of his books with uh, annotations, right, and guides to his own you know, further study and scholarship. And that's what makes them interesting as, as opposed to just sort of, I mean, Oh yeah, that guy. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, and, uh, the, the lull was, was fun because it had, um, uh, actually it had remarkably few, uh, little diagrams in it for a Kabbalistics book, but it did have, it was too small. To it was too small. Margins, yes. And it was too much of a quick reference. Yes. But it did have, um, a few in the back and it had, uh, little, uh, images of, uh, planetary angels, which I thought was, was was fun and interesting. Uh, I had not expected to see the planetary angels show up in Raymond Lowell, but there they were. And D was, uh, um, what do I want to say? He was um, annotating it, I guess, and uh, indicating which ones were the important ones. So that was, it was fun to go back. And, th and again, this is a guy who's from the 12th century who is already sort of a legendary great mind magus in the mind of the people who bothered to put this collection together. So this is a greatest hits of Raymond Lull, but in a small, easily hideable from the Inquisition form. Yes. So, when John D was podcasting, he was podcasting about uh, Raymond Lull. He was, yes. Yeah. So the next one we got to play with was a book uh, by Jerome Cardan, or Jerome Cardano, or Hirolamo Cardano, depending on Again, how English and or Italian and or Latin you want to be, uh, or Hieronymus Cardanus. Um, he was a, uh, a doctor and uh, expert in probability theory before there was such a thing, um, and astrologer in um, Milan, which was not the safest part of the world to be doing that stuff in, because every now and again, the Inquisition could grab you. Uh, and he was also an expert in secret writing, which it turns out is, you know, sort of an extension of uh, a probability theory then as now. Uh, he was late, four, late, late 15th, early 16th century, I think, or late. Yeah, I think I think it's right around in that circa 1500 era, although I, I don't know right off the top of my head. And he had um, and this, again, was sort of a, a collection of his works. Um, it, it's, it's called Libelli Kinke. So it's five books by Jerome Cardan, all, all bound up in, in one. And this one was really good because it had, uh, all kinds of stuff about, uh, angels and, uh, stars and, uh, neat stuff about how to sort of, uh, figure out, uh, probability avant la lettre, although it isn't the book in which he sort of, 
uh, uh, lay, lays it out there uh, for everyone to see. That I think is a different book. I don't think it's in this uh, collection, but it's but it's got some of the mathematical insights that uh, mostly uh, stuff that he used for uh, projecting uh, astrological information, and it had a uh, sort of a um, what do I want to say um, the uh, the the here's how to cast a horoscope dummy book is in it and so you can see blank horoscopes that d is filled in as he's teaching himself to cast horoscopes and there's even one in the margin where d draws draws out a horoscope gets about halfway through it and says ah screw it this one's screwed up and he just scratches it out so d is doing a learner's horoscopy uh throughout the margins of the jerome cardon and that was pretty great yeah and and throughout these uh, the larger books that we're talking about now he, there's a lot of passages where he is heavily underlined a whole bunch of stuff and uh, I guess like a typical student today, uh, highlighting most of every page. Uh, and then he draws these cool little hands with pointy fingers to then highlight the things that he really, really wanted to, to highlight and be able to find again uh, later, which is an interesting little uh, graphic device that I uh, found uh, quite enchanting. Uh, the next one is Plotinus. Yes, Plotinus, who was a very late Greek philosopher um, and uh, either took the name Plotinus or because of the coincidence of the name Plotinus, just like a DC supervillain decided that his job was to bring the insights of Plato to the then modern age. And because it was late Greek philosophy, he decided that Plato rather than being uh, interpretable as Gnostic was straight up Gnostic. And so it's one of the foundational philosophical texts of, of Gnosticism. It gets translated by a guy named Marsilio Ficino, uh, after the copy of Plotinus makes its way to Florence after the uh, fall of Constantinople. And that is part of what sets off this huge bomb of humanism in the sort of occult underground or occult overground, I guess it was, of Europe at the time. This a big book of closely argued Gnosticism about the notion that there is a shadow reality that we live in and a true secret reality that God only shows the elect. And that was a big deal for people at the time. And they all wanted to know about the true secret reality and they all wanted to uh, study it and find out what Plotinus said. And it was sort of a, a, a borderline heretical book. So it had that sort of cool taboo feel. And it was also really heavy going Platonist argument in an era where you couldn't always find all the works of Plato. And so Plotinus has nice, a nice little potted summary of Plato, which he uses to make his own points. And this is a, a, a book that, that D, you know, again, studied very intensely and you can see his writing throughout it. D was not a Gnostic. D was a, as far as anyone can tell, a, a theologically normal Anglican, except for the part about angels are talking to him all the time. And so he takes the operant quality, I guess, of Gnosticism without believing any of the bourgeois of Gnosticism, which I think is a fine, uh, you know, uh, st uh stroke of, of good faith for, for D the skeptic as opposed to, uh, who we normally think of as D the guy who gets taken by a convicted forger. Next up, we have uh, Trithemius. This one had uh, my favorite element to it and something I think we're probably both of us are in a, a race to incorporate into something. And since you're uh, working on something on alchemy, I think you're going to beat me to it. Uh, this book had volvels in it. And this is basically a paper spinner that you could uh, turn around in order to uh, have the, uh, I guess, what is mostly cryptographic information appear uh, differently as you uh, work out various ciphers. So tell us more about uh, uh, Trithemius's uh, Polygraphy Universal. Okay, Trithemius is a Benedictine abbot, which is so handy when you are studying the hardcore underpinnings of magic. 
um, who may actually have been studying the hardcore underpinnings of cryptography. We know that he had a book called Steganographia, uh, sac- uh, Secret Writing, that Dee found a copy of in Antwerp and couldn't get, and so he had to copy it out himself um, and take it back with him to England. And uh, Dee thought the, uh, the world of this book, he, he thought this was the whole reason he went to Antwerp was to find Trithemius on steganography. And for a long time, people were thinking, oh, that's because he's sending coded messages back to Queen Elizabeth from his time on the continent. And he's, you know, the first agent 007 in, in British intelligence. And he's keeping an eye out for bad doings uh, amongst Catholics. And then people sort of use Trithemius to solve Trithemius. And they're like, oh, no, it's a book about crazy angel magic that he's concealed in a book of codes. And that's why D wanted to find it. And then they solved it again. And it's like, nope, if you could solve the first batch of codes, you weren't good enough for Trithemius. So he puts the book about angel magic in between it. And there's more stuff about codes uh, further down. So God knows how far deep the Steganographia goes. And it is telling perhaps that D's copy of the Steganographia is lost. We don't know where it is, but he did have this work by Trithemus, the Polygraphy at Universelle Escritur Kabbalistique, which is to say this is the book of many alphabets that you can use for a universal Kabbalistic writing. Including some really crazy looking alphabets. Lots of crazy looking alphabets. And you can just imagine the printer um, in, you know, 15 whenever saying, really? I have to come up with dyes for all this stuff? And uh, Trithemi is saying, well, if you want the book to look good, if you want it to be right, and the printer <laughs> saying, our audience is very discerning. Can you, on, can uh, you just quality. draw them in? And Trithemius is saying, kind of defeats the point of making an alphabet book if I have to hand draw all the alphabets. And so back and forth, and one expects that being an abbot, Trithemius got his way. But book, as you say, is, is just a gorgeous piece of bookmaking. I mean, there, there's like red and, um, uh, and, and, and black color print. printing, which was pretty expensive up until about 20 years ago. Yeah, right, right. And, uh, was no cheaper, I suspect, in the, in the early 16th century. Um, and as you say, there was the inset volvel, so you could spin them around and see which, Kabbalistic values, which magical glyphs should have on certain, you know, levels of the, of the little code spinner wheel. Or also, of course, if you're using it actually as a key code for making codes, there's lots of uh, frequency tables and stuff like that in the back where Trithemius is laying out sort of the basics of cryptography as they knew it in circa 1500. Um, and it's, it's just a, a wonderful book because he has gone from the, outward appearance to every manuscript that they had in the monastery of Sponheim and maybe all the monasteries in the area and taken every alphabet that he could find and copied them out and tried to indicate what each one of them meant in the modern day or 16, 1500 alphabet so that you could translate one work from one monastery into another work because obviously the, the Roman alphabet, although settled by the Romans, then got unsettled by the Dark Ages and everyone had their own weird little shorthand. And Trithemius is trying to sort of nail down how many of these shorthands are true alphabets and what that means for Kabbalah, because, of course, every letter is an expression of the divine wisdom. And so you have to sort of be able to understand how letters work if you're going to understand Kabbalah. So it's a a pretty great uh, book all the way around. And you can see why D probably really steamed to find out it was gone when he got home. (laughs) Although there may have been some things that he took with him to Europe, and we know that he also checked ahead with his pals there to find out if they already had certain books that he would need to refer to because transporting uh, big, heavy books was even less convenient uh, then uh, than it is now. Right. There were no weight limits, but there were Belgian bandits. So, yes. Yes. Uh, and then finally, we have uh, Cyprian Leowitz's Eclipsum Omnium, 
Uh, and this is basically a uh, chart of upcoming eclipses. You skipped the other Trithemius. Oh, I did. There's two Trithemians. Yes. Okay, the other one is Deceptum Secundus. Yes, which means the seven ages. Um, and it is about the concept that... And this is such a good book. I have still got to figure out a way to use its insights. Because I have I had actually been reading it in, in English not that long before we touched it in Latin. Um, and it is uh, the thesis being that there are seven ages of the world, each presided over by a different planetary angel, and that each of the ages has within it a little sub-age, and if you figure out where on the specific wheel of angels you are, then you know what that time will be, because time and history is cyclical. So if you are ruled by the angel of Mars, you know there will be a lot of wars, where if you, you know that you're ruled by the, the angel of Mercury, there will be a lot of knowledge and communication, and, and so forth. And so um, it's basically, Trithemius is doing sort of Oswald Spengler avant la lettre, or sort of uh, Marx even avant la lettre, with the notion that there are these outside forces that are causing history to behave the way that history does. Um, his version is planetary angel, so obviously it's more realistic than class struggle, but there you go. Right. And and traditionally, Christianity is not uh, cyclical, so no. if you, yes. you, you need to add in some angels to make that work. Right. And that's and that's the interesting intellectual uh, revolution for Trithemius is the notion that it's cyclical, because Christianity is fine with there being seven age, ages of, of history up until the second coming, but if you start repeating them, then people start saying, well, does that mean the Messiah repeated? And that's the kind of question you're not supposed to be asking if you're a Christian, certainly. And uh, Trithemius, being a Benedictine abbot, one imagines had to do a little dancing when he got to the angelic period when Jesus is. Yes. <laughs> what do you mean exactly What are you trying to say? Trithemius? But this one was another great uh, Trithemius book, and it had more D uh, discussions about, uh, you know, in the margins about angels, which is always great to see. Okay, and now uh, the uh, Eclipse Manual. The Eclipse Manual. And this is just a straight-up book of eclipses, and it's going to give you all the eclipses from 1554 to 1606, and it's by a guy named Cyprian Leowitz. Um, which I don't know if he is a famous eclipsologist or not, but there he is. He's in Dee's library, so he's more famous than most people, I suppose. And it had a bunch of diagrams showing how the eclipse was going to work, but because it was, uh, you know, 1600 or, or 1550 or whatever, they're not little maps of the Earth showing the path of totality like they are now. They're d diagrams of the heavens, and you have to work out the totality from the math provided by Cyprian Leowitz. And of course, if you don't know what the world looks like, you may know that it's going to be a totality at such and such a degree of latitude and longitude, but you have no idea where that degree of latitude and longitude might be. And so D's got little, you know, calculations throughout the, the thing to tell him about various important eclipses. And it's, I guess, by the time you've read through all of them, you have as good an understanding of eclipses as you can have in a world where accepting Copernicus is still heretical in half of Europe, and Kepler has not yet figured out how orbits work in the other half. So it's kind of a it's kind of a the last gasp, I guess, of super Ptolemaic uh, astronomy. Um, and it's kind of it, it's an interesting edge case, I guess, of what you can do with epicycles and and pre-calculus math to predict an eclipse. But by God, you can do it because uh, Ptolemy's astronomy was not good for nothing. It was just wrong. All illustrated by a really uh, gorgeous, adorable uh, celestial bodies, all of whom have faces with different expressions on them. So there are yeah, depending on how bad the eclipse is, the moon or sun will be scowling at you. Yes. Um, and uh, 
the uh, we got a preview of not of actually looking at the objects, but looking at photographs of other objects that'll be part of the exhibit. So they're going to have uh, Dee's scrying crystal on loan from the Science Museum and his uh, solar disc on loan from the British Museum. And there's a painting that I uh, uh, found uh, really interesting. This is usually in the uh, Welcome uh, collection, and uh, this is uh, by a 19th century. Uh, sort of pictorial history painter called Henry Gillard Glendoni, and the painting is the uh, John Dee performing an experiment before Elizabeth the first, and you can find uh, images of this online and check that out. But the fascinating thing that they've discovered in the course of uh, this exhibit is they x-rayed the painting, and it turns out there are vestiges of a previous version. Uh, this is a picture of him uh, at an idealized version of his house with uh, an idealized uh, Elizabeth I and uh, various other idealized courtiers uh, in a sort of golden sun-dappled room. But uh, we can, uh, apparently the uh, original version has this ring of skulls around D. And Edward Kelly appears in the uh, second version, but does not appear uh, in the uh, x-ray. And so clearly uh, anyone who's had any experience of art direction knows that what happened there is that uh, Glendoni uh, got the brief from the person commissioning it and then uh, took it to the client. And they said, I didn't ask for a ring of skulls. This has to go over the dining room. And, and you forgot Edward Kelly. He's the important figure. And so uh, just as you sometimes give uh, instructions uh, to a, a gaming illustrator to revise a few things, he had to go back and paint over all the super cool skulls and oh, I wonder if there's all skulls, skulls. The reason I wanted to do this and oh here's Edward Kelly let's stick him in the corner uh, so that's in uh, the dark <laughs> yes exactly uh, so th that's a, a on what is already a really fascinating artifact a really cool uh, a glimpse into uh, not D himself but the 19th uh, century of, vision of D yes because of course uh, even today there's a uh, a kind of a split between people who want to see him as a magician and other people who want to see him as an exemplar of uh, respectable Anglicanism and all that is and math. Uh, good about math and uh, having an empire and a navy and uh, all of those uh, other things. So any uh, closing thoughts? Do we leave out anything other than, uh, hey, everybody who's able to go to this exhibit, make sure you go to this exhibit? Um, I, I think that, you know, it's just, there is something great fun about sort of seeing the building blocks of D's intellect in his library. It's just a terrific experience to have, to have seen the, the books, which you'll get to do at the, at, at the exhibit, obviously. And the fun of sort of as the, as the, as the lovely and talented Katie Berkwood is, is talking to us, she, you can tell that she is trying to tease out while being still very polite and English, um, exactly what kind of crazy person we are, <laughs> right? Because there'd be a thing and, and um, we, we, you know, we'd, we'd bring up the summoning of angels and whatnot. And, and she said, so, so what's your take on that? You know, yes, <laughs> I think Alex described us to her as, as writers in the field. So uh -huh. it was not our, our pop cultural affiliations were not necessarily made a hundred percent clear. Yes. Ahead of but, but I suspect people who are really interested in John D do, as you say, come in, in two, in at least two categories. And at least one of those categories are the kind of people that you think might, um, uh, you know, throw a smoke grenade and try and abscond with the Jerome Cardon. <laughs> yes. 
So, uh, so, so once your uh, skepticism was uh, was revealed, uh, things went swimmingly. Yes, well, not, not that they were going unswimming. No, they were already but... swimming because she was delightful and and very hospitable and gracious. It's just that I think she got to say, "Oh, okay, these these guys know the score, and uh, we can sort of let our metaphorical hair down and have a little fun with it without me worrying that suddenly someone's going to try to summon anything." Right. Uh, so uh, once again, the uh, dates for that show at the Royal College of Physicians in London are. January 18th to July 29th. And very much worth seeing um, as well. Uh, they're, they're, I mean, there's, it's a great place to go and, and look at the stuff anyway, because it's a wonderful attempt to you know, keep the, the, the early modern or late medieval alive in this sort of 20th century uh, modern uh, building. And uh, I... Do we want to talk about the the dissection tables, or do we want to leave those? The dissection tables will have to wait for another, for, another, for another episode. We'll, we'll, okay. we'll give a whole segment. We did us. not only see the the intellectual magic of John D. We got to see a darker magic. Yes, we something a, a little visceral, a little a little more. I oh, never mind. I, I'm, I was going to give it all away, but I'm not going to. All right, on to the next hut. The next hut. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The thump of miniatures, the rattle of dice, the crackle of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive from the other end of the card table tell us that once more we have entered the intimate shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, uh, it looks like everything 
uh, is so very complex with all the tables and charts and dice and little men and uh, Cool Ranch versus Nacho Cheese Doritos. But in fact, it couldn't be more simple. It couldn't be more of a delightful gaming session. And Robin, I guess what we're going to talk about is whether or not games are complex, uh, because obviously your individual need for a complex game changes depending on how much free time you have and whether or not you're 13. Um, but also it changes in ways that maybe you might not expect, right? Because when you're 13, there's nothing that's more fun than having three or five or seven volumes of Dungeons and Dragons to pour through and master and, and become super understanding of all the spells and all the various level feats and interactions. And then maybe as you get, uh, to be a, yeah, at least for a subset of 13 year olds, right, yeah. there may, there may be, uh, some other, other 13 segments year olds, of 13 right, yes. year old land that we have yet to, uh, access <laughs> that, that we the, were not. And so therefore, yeah. uh, remain mysterious to us all and certainly you know there are lots of people who are, are uh, far from the age of 13 who still enjoy uh, a super crunchy game so if you absolutely yes. you know if you say to a champions fan uh hey this rule gets a little complex they rub their hands together and go can we is, does this have cosines in it this is just trigon trigonometry i thought you said it would be complex yeah puff Fa. and humph um, but I think that goes to the idea that complexity, standards of complexity vary according to segments of the audience and, and definitely, uh, different games attract people with different, uh, tolerances for complexity. And as you indicate, uh, people's willingness to climb the hills of complexity change over time as well, according to how much uh, free time you have. And I guess specifically, um, uh, we started talking about the whole issue of actual complexity versus perceived complexity uh, while we're at Dragon Meat, uh, specifically in regard to Knight's Black Agents, which is a game in the gumshoe line. Uh, if I've heard more people over the years uh, observe that gumshoe is not crunchy enough for them than that it is too crunchy, it is a very simple game. But among our audience, we're beginning to hear a bit of uh, feedback about Knight's Black Agents in particular seeming a little uh, complex or intimidating to them, which from our point of view, is kind of weird since it's basically, it's just the Esoterrorists plus some of the optional rules for the Esoterrorists that are in another book put in the main book of NBA, and then you've filled out a few more additional things. Yeah, so the chase rules and heat, pretty much. Yeah, the, the chase rules and heat, and I guess the pyramids where you design mm -hmm. the, the conspiracies. But I would think that probably the thing that has more crunchiness in it is actually my Ash and Stars game, Yeah, uh, which uh, adds... Uh, ship combat and ship building and all these different viruses that you can uh, use to attain different uh, alien powers. And uh, But uh, it's uh, NBA that uh, some people are beginning to think is complicated when it really, uh, from our point of view, isn't. And so there are a number of things that you can do uh, once you discover this in feedback, one of which is you can have a segment on your podcast where you say, hey, it isn't that complicated. Jump right on in. <laughs> That's right. Um, that, that should clear it up. Thanks a lot, everyone. There we go. Uh, while our other segments are going to run long, we can uh, cut this short. Um, so uh, apart from that, though, I guess the, the questions are for design in general, how do you manage complexity for people so that if there's something that you know at the table is not that difficult to learn or to do, how to make it look simple uh, while you're writing the book, what different ways you can present to, to break things out. And uh, part of that, I think we've talked uh, in previous uh, segments about um, edge cases of rules, and you can sort of, if there's a rule that doesn't come up that often, you can kind of put it in a, its own section near the back of the book to kind of indicate that, you know, you're not going to need to know the 
ship combat rules until you design a scenario that has a ship combat in it. So here it's in its own chunk. Um, but apart from book structure, uh, if you were uh, tackling NBA again, are there things that you would uh, do to um, convey the message that uh, this is still the same simple gumshoe that you've uh, known and loved all along? I mean, I think that one of the things about NBA, and I think it's true by and large about all role-playing games, is that the graphic design, and, and it's not that the graphic design of NBA is bad, it's, it's a beautiful looking book, but as a user document, right, as a way to teach people who are not first and foremost technical writer learners um, how to use a thing, no role-playing game is particularly good. It doesn't sort of give you the process mapped out. Um, it doesn't give you a, a quick and easy graphic utility where everything that's in a blue dot is one kind of rule and everything that's in a red dot is another kind of rule. And a lot of those sort of graphic design and look of a book, I think, can be improved uh, just, you know, looking at the way that we've, you know, learned how to teach people to put together bookcases, uh, much less other sort of more complex sorts of technical writing. If you look at um, guides to uh, uh, playing through very popular video games, you will find that they have a whole sort of iconographic vocabulary that they use that teaches you how to play the game sort of smoothly and directly with the graphics, or at least teaches you the direction that reading the graphic the rules should go uh, by graphic flow. And that's something that we haven't really done anywhere in the role-playing industry. So it would be fun, I think, to turn a good graphic designer with an understanding of role-playing loose on a rule set, any rule set, be it NBA or any other, and say, hey, you're coming to this blind. Lay out how you would show people the flow of rules through this. Because the problem with a role-playing game is it has to do two jobs simultaneously. First, it has to teach the game. Then it has to provide a technical reference as you play the game. And those are not the same set. And those are two different missions. And you can't organize one book to do both. And so I think it would be interesting to see, to the extent if you could use graphic design to do the first and regular book putting together to do the second, how close you could get to putting together a book that is more intuitive in play. Because, uh, again, uh, NBA is not complex, but there are a lot of maneuvers. There's a lot of things that you need to know. Oh, if I'm a bang and burner and if I have this level of explosives, I have these options. I can do these kinds of maneuvers. I can do this kind of fun stuff in a chase. I can do this with this same thing. Once you internalize what the mechanics are, it's all special cases. It's all just using the mechanics as presented. And maybe you're a little more powerful if you remember something, um, which is sort of the whole way role-playing games have worked since 1974. But I think that presenting it graphically might be an interesting uh, way to do it. Also, NBA does in fact need a proper index of vampire powers, which we didn't get at the time. And I put into double tap, but you know, a little too late there, I think. And so there needs to be some sort of, of graphic recapitulation and maybe a uh, presentation of, of idealized character types, not templates necessarily, but if you are the bang and burner, here are the kinds of things you'll probably get to do, assuming you hit these touch points in your character design. And so it gives you the list of all the maneuvers that you might be able to do in one place. And again, that's reduplication because you're reduplicating it from the core book, but it's handy to use at the table. So again, two different missions, right? Right. Um, and there, there are things about uh, writing a rule set that uh, unfortunately kind of dictate an order in which you have to present things in order not to have references ahead into the book. Mm -hmm. So that if you've got a particular rule that is then other rules build out from, you need to present that as early as you can in the manuscript so that you're not 
page referencing somebody deep into the book and then coming back to it. But that's the order that you need to understand the rule is not necessarily the ideal order in which you would necessarily want to teach the rule, or it can make it seem uh, it, uh, unnecessarily complicated. A another factor, I think, also uh, in, in general is some settings are more intimidating uh, than others. And I think the modern world is a more intimidating setting, uh, and particularly uh, parts of the modern world that you are geographically unfamiliar with, which for Americans is everything but America. And uh, Night's Black Agents is, is set in Europe and sort of the shadowy intelligence world. And I think a lot of GMs are more comfortable in an environment where they can make stuff up and not be contradicted by another player at the table or just their sense of reality, which is the downside of your uh, use Earth dictum, which I think some people feel that they're not necessarily able to master um, their knowledge of the, the current world to, to an extent that they need to. Yeah, so, the, the very complexity and interrelatedness that makes Earth a better setting also makes it harder for some people to feel confident that they've wrap their head around enough to run a game in. Right. So just like, you know, sitting down to write a Tom Clancy style espionage thriller, I think seems more intimidating to people than uh, writing a space opera where you get to make your way up to get through different uh, plot holes and, and so forth. And again, I think that's just a, a matter of perception that you have to uh, address and wrestle with is that some things feel more complicated than they really are and some things feel simpler than they really are and it's hard to kind of bridge that world of initial impression to you know just getting people to sit down at the table and find out that their uh, trepidations about how complicated something are going to be are unwarranted that it's you know still as simple a game as you're familiar with running and that all of your skills as a gm are ones that you can uh, bring into play and that there's all sorts of support material uh, in the, the game books to allow you to describe what's going on in Bratislava or what the uh, gun running network in, in Belgium is like, or that you just have to sort of uh, trust in the material and trust in your ability to uh, hand wave things and the uh, forbearance of other players to uh, tolerate uh, the fact that this is your fictional version of the world. This is not a world that you can well actually to death and get a good result. Right. Which, in fairness, you know, should be true of the Forgotten Realms, too. If you have the great uh, fortune to play with somebody who knows the Forgotten Realms really well, you can get well actually there just as easily as you can in, you know, Belgium. Yes, exactly. And and people talk about uh, Glorantha in that way and Talislanta as well. Yeah. So it's it's not just Earth that does that. It's just that Earth also has Belgian gunrunners. So... Who doesn't love that? Yeah, right. I think the um, the the degree of setting confidence is a different question than the degree of system confidence. And I guess you're right that in a world where you feel like you have to have a, a you know a, a a bigger pair of 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 boots to to get into the setting, you're going to wind up having any complexity of the system will feel magnified because it's like, I already have to memorize all the different Russian mafias. Now you are telling me I have to memorize a combat maneuver too. What the hell? I'm only one man or woman. Right. And, and all the, the combat maneuvers are very storytelling oriented. Yeah. It's like you, you stand there and describe something technical about your gun and then you get a bonus. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually take the technical thing about your gun and put it into the mechanics. It's, right. yeah. uh, it's very much in a, a storytelling uh, style. So, but I think if, if you're just looking at the, uh, that section of rules and seeing all the headers and seeing all those, uh, 
technical sounding names, uh, there might be a moment before you dive in to see how uh, simple and tongue in cheek they are in, in a lot of ways. Uh, maybe that also is what people are, are bouncing off of. Yeah. And it's, and it's a little tough to sort of, you know, without breaking the illusion that you're trying to create in the, in the book of, this is all, you know, torn from the today's headlines with vampires to wink really loudly at the reader and say, come on, man, we're all just, you know, quoting born movies to each other. Let's get on with it. Right. Because the, it's not supposed to be parodic in tone. No, uh, it's not supposed <laughs> to be funny, the opposite. <laughs> but it's also. Yeah, but it's it's uh, light in its in its application. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly uh, for both of us going forward, uh, working on designs. I think that's something uh, that we'll want to think about more is how to convey the feeling of crunchiness and also at the same time kind of indicate that it's just a feeling of crunchiness, that it's not uh, something actually complicated that you'll need to wrestle with. And again, it's not even like there's one best case for how to present a teaching manual. Even if you say, no. we're only writing this to teach people to play the game and we'll count on the index to do all the other heavy lifting. Um, there's, you know, some people will say, I want to know right up front what my character is doing. Other people say, I want to know right up front what the system resolution is. And a third batch of people say, I want to know right up front how to build my character. And none of those people are wrong, but you can't make all of them happy with one book. Right. And it's ultimately a matter of confronting subjective impressions. And those are by their nature varied from person to person. Yeah. So it's, it's something to be aware of and to talk about and uh, uh, maybe just address a lot in the, you know, even a big sidebar at the beginning that says with a big, block header, don't worry, this is not actually complicated. Maybe, you know, that alone would, would have done it. Um, so anyway, uh, speaking of uh, complicated, we have something coming up which is not complicated, but uh, rather tall, and uh, we'll get to that after this exciting message. when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy. What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. And that rather tall thing is the long 
stack of books that Ken brought back with him from uh, London. In the morning, we went to uh, look at the John D. books. Then there's a celebratory dinner on the Monday in the middle of the day. And then at the end of that, uh, perhaps with some wine in us, uh, Ken and I traditionally go and hit some bookstores, and I watch with vicarious glee as he buys books. And this time, uh, uh, both uh, Simon Rogers and Kat Tobin of Pelgrane were around to behold the wonder as you hit Treadwell's and the flagship foils on Charing Cross Road, and there was a used bookstore in the middle there. Uh, do you remember what that was called? Scoob Books. Scoob Books. Which uh, began, I don't know if the bookstore was first or the publishing company was first, but there used to be a publishing company that was very, very good uh, called Scoob Esoterica, and it published esoteric books, among them our old buddy Kenneth Grant and some other uh, books. I have a really great uh, book on Elizabethan magic uh, by a guy named Turner that I think was a Scoob book. And for a long time, Scoob was one of those publishers that existed solely to annoy me because they knew exactly what books I wanted, but they printed them probably to specific order. So they were always crazy expensive if you tried to buy them straight up. So your life was spent waiting for the one guy who didn't actually want Scoob books to be given them by his brother or something <laughs> and sell them back to the used bookstore for a, a magician to blow himself up in his alchemy lab and for a whole raft of Scoob to come onto the market suddenly. But it was very, or very hard to, to find somebody's sc- brother-in-law to be careless, to be with careless the with the door in Europe, just as a chance. Um, but it was anyway, it was very, uh, you know, getting English books in America is sometimes a, a job of work anyway. And to get, uh, small press, esoteric, crazy people, English books is even harder. And so, A, that's the reason to go to Treadwells when you're in England. But B, it is, uh, uh, something that I had hoped would still be lurking around Scoob books when I got there. But in fact, no, it was just a terrific used bookstore, uh, which is great. But, uh, I was hoping for rather more, um, uh, works of Kabbalah and, and Elizabethan magic and, and whatnot. And in fact, there was not that there. Well, let's, uh, paw through the pile here. Let's start with, the Orientalist by Tom Reese. Uh, the titular Orientalist is uh, Lev Nussbaum, who was a novelist and, um, and and creative thinker, I guess technically, sort of one of those guys who's more famous as an imposter than as a as whatever he was normally. Uh, he wound up in Nazi Germany uh, after converting to Islam in Turkey and disguised himself as a Muslim prince. And wrote under his name, Assad Bey, and he wrote a bunch of, you know, sort of, you know, how being a, a Muslim prince has made me feel here in Germany books. And uh, he wrote a novel called Ali and Nino under a different pseudonym, Kurban Said. And uh, then... Uh, in 1938, realizing that the Nazis were going to start checking up on uh, faux Muslim princes, he skipped to Italy, which is, a, you know, a little bit better because Mussolini was only hunting down Jews on every other Tuesday as opposed to all the damn time and uh, eventually died, uh, though I don't think he necessarily died of being a Jew in Italy. I think he may have just died of privation, um, which is sort of like that, but not, you know, he was not uh, taken out completely. Uh, but anyway, the thing about uh, his story that sort of attracted me is he was from that weirdly, what do I want to say? Cosmopolitan, but that's not even cosmopolitan, technophilic, strange, 
late 19th century world that was around Baku, which was a huge oil boom city in the 1880s and 1890s, much as it is today in Azerbaijan. And it created this sort of crazy uh, melting pot of, of Russian administrators and Azerbaijani locals and entrepreneurs of, you know, Jewish and Armenian and Greek entrepreneurs and Americans who would come in and, and teach everyone how to use oil and French engineers. And it was sort of this crazily, you know, uh, you know, if, if you had not known Baku existed, you would think steampunk authors made it up to make uh, tiresome ideological points. But that's what Baku <laughs> is like. And uh, uh, Nussenbaum came out of that and wound up uh, sort of internalizing a lot of that. And then, I mean, because, for example, he wrote a, a fake autobiography called Blood and Oil of the Orient about his life as as Esad Bey in Azerbaijan and parts around there. And so he, he it's sort of this weird internalization of this weirdly artificial society that brings him out into Germany. And of course, it's just weird to have pretend Muslim princes wandering around Weimar and uh, Hitlerian Germany, uh, which has, you know, many, many opportunities for Trail of Cthulhu type play. So, and also Tom Reese is a good writer. Uh, he did a, a really good biography of uh, Dumas's dad uh, that was a uh, black Haitian colonel in the French Revolutionary Army and had all manner of crazy adventures, much like a Dumas character, one might suggest. Speaking of excellent writers, we have uh, Peter Aykroyd up next with the casebook of Victor Frankenstein. What is Aykroyd's take on Frankenstein? Uh, this is a novel. This is not a proper uh, casebook of Victor Frankenstein, thank God, um, because I don't think I could handle jumping right into the other great classic of Gothic literature quite this soon, although watch this space, obviously. But this is just a, one of his straight-up sort of uh, mixtures of fict and faction, his uh, sort of uh, way that he looks in at literature from what might be seen as uh, weirdly populist sides. So, for example, he has... Um, uh, his big book on George Gissing is also about, uh, East End clowns. <laughs> uh, he did, he, you know, he's one of those guys who's obsessed you with- You need to add clowns to Gissing. You do need, you need a lot of clowns to make Gissing happy. Um, uh, and not enough clowns as it, as it worked out. Um, but, uh, so, you know, he puts a serial killer into, into good old Nicholas Hawksmore. There's, there's so much stuff that he does in his novels that he can't, uh, properly do in his straight up histories, which are also magnificent because- He's got this crazily wonderful mind that holds all of British literature and geography and history and just sort of shakes it and more pops out every book. So he's worth reading in anything that you, you get him in. And obviously a quasi-Romanoclef, quasi-historical, quasi-secret history of monsters novel about Victor Frankenstein and Percy Shelley is going to be worth the price of admission. And given that I've read it in a much inferior form by Brian Aldiss, the fact that I now get to read it from Peter Aykroyd is like a bonus to me. Uh, so it's, it's a metafictional um, meeting of uh, actual literary yeah, figures. Yeah, basically. With, uh, um, and it's, you know, of course, Aykroyd being Aykroyd. So God knows what else is in there. There may be clowns. I don't know. Uh, next, we have England's first demonologist, Reginald Scott and the Discovery of Witchcraft by Philip C. Almond. Uh, Reginald Scott was a guy who wrote a history of uh, witchcraft or an investigation of witchcraft, as he called it, a discovery of witchcraft, in which he did two things. First, he came up with every single witch story that he could find, and he puts it all down in his book. So it's this great Dennis Wheatley story of black magic and covens and naked people and poisons and things you rub. <laughs> and then he says, and they're all delusional, crazy people. There's no such damn thing as witchcraft. 
pull your head out. This is the frickin' 16th century. We're moderns. And it turns out that when you do that in the Scotland run by James Stewart, you are butting heads with the king and not a king who appreciates having his head butted. Nope. He does not think it is crazy talk. He does not think he it is craziness. It's, it's a hanging offense. He is he is dead set against the witches and their machinations and believes that pointy-headed intellectuals like Reginald Scott are part of the problem. And so, as it happens, uh, the discovery of witchcraft is banned by King James. So it is an occult manual that is banned by the king, but for the crime of saying... Oh, stop it. There's no such thing as witches. Which must have disappointed a lot of people who went to a lot of trouble to get that banned book. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of a, a double, double irony. But they do get lots and lots of ointment stories, so that's nice. Um, and this is uh, one of the few, uh, as we see more and more stuff uh, begin to drill down into the early moderns, we start, you know, getting past our 90th biography of Queen Elizabeth and our 50th biography of Shakespeare and into the other people that made uh, the Tudor era so delightful. Uh, and, and in fact, in this case, the early Stuart era is so delightful. And uh, Philip Scott, uh, Reginald Scott, rather, is definitely one of them. So I'm uh, very much looking forward to having that in my go-to bag if we ever go back to, say, Scholars of Night or something. Next up, we have Our Men in Brazil, the Hesketh Brothers Abroad by Ian Sargent. The Hesketh Brothers are three merchant brothers who all of them become British consuls in various parts of Brazil during that time when it is... Uh, its own empire after Portugal has fallen to the hated French and the uh, court sort of flees across the ocean and sets up their own empire in Brazil. And then after Portugal comes back, they think, well, we have an empire here and we just have to go back to boring old Portugal. And so Brazil stays a honest to God empire there in the new world. And the sort of delightful anachronism and silliness of that has sort of drawn alternate historians and pseudo historians and dilettantes like myself forever and ever. And this is sort of a you know, straightforward, money-making, city of London bunch of guys who go into this craziness land and are immediately subsumed in all its craziness. And uh, their uh, sort of attempts to maintain uh, business and normality in the increasingly, I don't say deranged, because that makes it un unkind, but the increasingly adrift uh, world of the Brazilian empire is, I think, one that's going to be uh, kind of fun and interesting. I'm, I've got a, a Jones on for the Brazilian empire, as you can tell, given that I am also fundamentally unserious. Uh, now we come to Palo Mayombe, the Garden of Blood and Bones by Nikolai de Matos Freewald. Yeah, that one and the next book on the list, Eshu and the Kimbanda of Night and Fire, are both from the wonderful people of Scarlet Imprint. And Scarlet Imprint is And, and the a, same author. And the same author, right. And this is a publisher that does very beautiful books that are attempting to go very deep into specific occult traditions um, with with greater or lesser success, I guess, depending. Um, they, uh, If you are longtime listeners of Ken's Bookshelf, they did uh, the Goetia book that had the crazy notion that uh, Goetia is actually ancient Greek classical magic that you can trace and has nothing to do with angels and boring old Christianity. They had uh, the, the the translation of the, of the of the true grimoire, the Grimoireum Virum. Um, so that was that was great fun. So they do really quality work of scholars who they don't vet at all. And so, <laughs> so the respectability level is low or just variable. It variable. It depends book to book. And I know nothing against Nicholas de Matos Frisvald. For all I know, he is a proper anthropologist who has dotted all of his I's and crossed all of his T's and never done a single thing wrong. But when he wants to write about traditions of black magic in Cuba and Brazil, uh, realizes that, 
the place to get it published is Scarlet Imprint, not University of Leiden Press or whatever. And so there is a, a great and wonderful outpouring of information in both of them about the Palomiombe sect, which is a offshoot of the Cuban Chanteria a bit and of uh, the Kimbanda, which is the hardcore street version of Brazilian Umbanda and Candomblé. They're, these are the guys that say, oh, Umbanda and Candomblé are for uh, the, the respectable guys, but we're the cool <laughs> magicians who wear black and go around and talk to devils like Eshu. He's a cool devil. You wouldn't have heard of him. And they're like, actually, we kind of do hear of him. He's like the most important devil in all of Candomblé. Yeah. And they're like, well, you don't know him like we do. I, I liked his early stuff. I liked his early stuff. You, We were into Eshu before you were into Eshu. Yeah. And so they're they're very um uh they're both very sort of aggressively antinomian sects that then turn around and complain that people say that they're black magicians who sacrifice babies and goats. And so it's like, yes, goats, no babies, stop being so mean to us. And it's like, hey, walk talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk. So I'm very interested to see uh first of all, which side Nicolas de Matos Frisvold comes down on, and second of all, if he constrains himself to humdrum fact or goes into uh, particularly zany notions about it's actually a secret Dionysian sect that launched from the you know interior of Libya or something. So I'm 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 looking I'm crossing my fingers that he is one of the borderline uh, scholars of uh, Afro-Caribbean religion, not a serious one, but if he's a serious one it'll still be a great book. Uh, next up we have Hooligan: A History of Respectable Fears. By Jeffrey Pearson. And this is Jeffrey Pearson saying that uh, worrying about urban crime is for uh, losers uh, because there's always been urban crime and the specific form of the worry never changes regardless of the pattern. So he takes the modern day in that time, because I think it's written in the early 90s or late 80s, uh, worry about urban crime, and he tracks it back to the same worried about the Teddy Boys in the 60s, and then back to the um, uh, the, the sort of worry about Italian uh, black hand criminals in the 1880s and 1890s that Sherlock Holmes touches on, and then back as far back as the Mohawks in the early 18th, and then I think back to medieval times. And each time he says... Let's look at a moral panic about urban crime, and let's notice that they're the same thing, and then let's give numbers to see how bad these crime waves actually are, or if they're even crime waves, as opposed to simply, you know, a uh, an expression of social fear. Right, and, our, uh, our need for a bogeyman. Our need for a bogeyman. And I think Jeffrey Pearson, being a uh, tenured academic in late 80s Britain, is going to come down firmly on, uh, it's just bogeyman uh, and a social problem. Uh, but it's the social problem among the bourgeoisie, not among the misunderstood youth. But either way, it's going to take me all the way back to medieval uh, crime panics in England. And since it's a history of fear, it's immediately relevant to horror writing as well. Uh, speaking of fear and murder, uh, we have Murder and Mysteries from the North York Moors by Peter N. Walker. Uh, this is a, um, what do I want to say, a, a gallimaufry? It's not even a crestomathy. It's a it's a bunch of stuff, an amphigory, if you will. A potpourri. A potpourri. A blood-spattered one. A blood-spattered potpourri of weird stuff from North Yorkshire that has caught Peter Walker's uh, interest. So among the things that are in it are the um, uh, the uh, Hand of Glory that they've got in the Whitby Museum that I've already covered on the wonderful pages of um, uh, Page XX. Uh, it has um, various other, you know, sort of murders and um, fun sort of local mysteries, haunted houses. So it's basically if you are a ex-cop who wanders around in Yorkshire, you hear a bunch of crazy stuff and you write it all down in a book. And so one imagines that it 
is not going to be murdery enough for murder people and not ghosty enough for ghost people, but because I'm both murder and ghost people, I think it should be pretty good. Yes. Plot hooks ahoy in Mm -hmm, North Yorkshire. And uh, next up, William Lilly, The Last Magician by Peter Stockinger and Sue Ward. Uh, William Lilly was primarily, I guess you want to say, an astrologer. um, And he is famously uh, a guy who predicted uh, the Great Fire, and uh, then he ran away. And he was uh, kind of a problem child. <laughs> he didn't run away with a match in his hand, did he? No, he did not run away with a match in his hand. But he he was he he was sort of very popular in before the English Revolution. He would he would do prophetical almanacs, and prophetical almanacs are amongst the genre of book that people would criticize the Stuart monarchy in, and they would say, you know, well, the position of Neptune of, uh, of Jupiter in Virgo says that the king is a jerk, <laughs> and um, uh, he being an almanac guy wound up sort of in a lot of uh, political arguments and drew on them in order to draw business to his almanacs, which was great until the restoration when Charles II uh, looked with disfavor on people who published almanacs that featured the constellations criticizing him, featured constellations criticizing his murdered father. And so he, um, uh, he did a uh, a lot of um a lot of work. He also looked into Trithemius's cyclical um uh, universe, by the way. So another connection for for him. There we go. Cyclical yes. indeed. And then got sort of bullied by early moderns who used him as the convenient whipping boy for astrology because he was politically unreliable and so they could beat him up without the king saying, "Now now, not all astrologers." Hashtag, um, hash- well, although hashtag was spelled with two G's and an E because it was the 17th century. Yeah. Maybe it was T-A-G-U-E. Anyway, he becomes a whipping boy and, and a example of the guy who is living sort of at the cusp of when astrology starts as a respectable thing you might have in a good house and becomes the sort of thing that sort of foreigners do and, and backstairs people. And maybe you have an astrologer, but you certainly don't talk about it. And you put the almanacs down with the, the porn uh, where the servants can't get them, that kind of thing. Well, I, I hear a, a teetering, and I suspect that, uh, Ken, if you're not careful, some of these books will fall over on top of you. So while you go and uh, uh, restack your pile, we'll uh, sneak out for an important uh, message of interest to listeners and then be right back. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolsey frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as 
Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention, Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid Zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. And we are back with another segment of Ken's Bookshelf, uh, containing the rest of his phenomenal haul from uh, his uh, London book raid of 2015. And the first item in the second pile of books is Phantom Terror, The Threat of Revolution and the Repression of Liberty, 1789 to 1848, by Adam Zamoyski. Yeah, Adam Zamoyski is a Polish uh, historian, and he is a faultlessly liberal in the old 19th century sense of the term, um, although I believe he would also identify as a liberal in the perfectly uh, fine 21st century sense of the term. But he was he was very much against uh, the encroaching power of the state to mess with you. And so he does a great number of uh, things in his various histories of the 19th uh, and 18th centuries of identifying the currents of what became liberal Europe and then identifying the status tendencies that crushed those currents. And this is the second half of that because it is after the French Revolution has begun. It's everyone else in Europe having a crazy panic and instituting police states, including the French, of course, uh, to uh, guard the ideological purity of, of their currently non-revolting, or in the French case, currently revolting uh, country, and then under Napoleon to stamp out the uh, liberal uh, fires that had brought him to power in the first place. So he, he starts in 1798, basically with the ascension of the Directory in France and the uh, beginning of full-on wartime police measures in Great Britain. And then runs all the way through to 1848 and the cracks in the Metternichian uh, sphere of uh, 19th century war on terror, as it were, or war on people who didn't like Habsburgs, which was roughly the same thing to Metternich. Next, we have a title that people have been uh, clamoring for and asking you for a recommendation for and now suddenly exists. And that's Spy, a handbook by Harry Ferguson. Yeah, and I have not looked at this book in detail, so I do not know how good it is, but it is the book people have wanted, which is, give me a book that tells me how to do tradecraft. I want a book that tells me about dead drops and asset handling and all those sorts of things and how to know if you're being followed by KGB guys and whatever. And this looks like that book. It looks like a very straightforward uh, tradecraft from soup to nuts type book. It does not go into the full-on analysis side so much. Uh, which is probably for the best because that's the boring part to play. Uh, but it, uh, it, it should give at least a first cut at how spying is done and therefore be a useful resource for nice black agents players and, uh, Delta Green players perhaps as well. Right. And it's a tie in with a BBC documentary series. Yeah. For a, for a BBC show about, about, you know, which was probably all filmed in CCTV light because BBC is <laughs> yeah. fun, funnily ironic that way. <laughs> Look at the overwhelming, uh, state power said the overwhelming state power, but it should be uh, pretty okay. Like you say, BBC's a certain level of quality is inferred. And then also it is more than that, it is accessible, which is really the, 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 the key point because we are hopefully none of us going to be dodging, uh, GRU assassins, but we are many of us hopefully going to be playing people who are dodging GRU assassins. 
Right. And as we hear the echoing sounds of laughter of people who work at the BBC uh, chuckling at the notion that they have power of any sort, we move on to Other Pasts, Different Presents, Alternative Futures by Jeremy Black. By Jeremy Black. Uh, this is a academic look at alternate histories and what are, what, you know, what are they good for? Uh, and I'm not sure what Jeremy Black thinks they're good for because I haven't had time to look at the book in any great detail, but it had a Zeppelin on the cover, which made me know that it was a proper alternate history book. Uh, yes. Uh, as everyone knows, all alternate histories contain Zeppelins. Contain Zeppelins. And, uh, this is, you know, I, there's a number of, of decent, uh, academic studies of alternate history and, and what it's, uh, thinks it's doing. And I assume that as we get, uh, more and more respectable adherence in the academy, we are going to get more and more of these kinds of think pieces. And that is a good thing. So I'm encouraging it. Next up, Shakespeare and the Countess, the battle that gave birth to the globe by Chris Lataris. And I assume this is about the building of the globe theater. It is the building of the Globe Theater, but it is actually about the angry lawsuit by the Blackfriars Theater's neighbor, who was Lady Elizabeth Russell, who was quite a character. She was insanely well-educated. The degree to which she was educated was famous all over Europe. She was a hardcore Puritan, so she believed the theater was the place of the devil, and I think she also believed that it was a place that noisy drunks kept coming into her backyard and vomiting from. 50% of that is true. 50% of that is true. Um, and uh, she was a rigorous lawsuit haver against anyone that got up her nose for any reason. She and among litigious those people, with an extra E on the end. With an extra E on the end, and because... She is crazily well-connected. It's like her nephew is Francis Bacon and her other nephew is Robert Cecil or her brother-in-law. Some, some kind of very, very close connection is Robert Cecil, the chancellor of England, basically, the guy who runs the treasury for Queen Elizabeth. She cannot be, you know, gotten around. So, for example, Shakespeare's patron, the Lord Chamberlain, is again, one of her relatives. So when she sues Shakespeare to get his theater out, Shakespeare can't go to his patron and say, can you get this crazy woman off my back? Because Hunsden is like, look, if I could get <laughs> I know Elizabeth get Russell off, off anyone's back, back you are you are not first in line, <laughs> Billy Shakes. Um, so, and I warn you that starting this book is a terrible thing if you have a deadline. So I recommend not reading this book until you are in a, in a good place writing-wise, because I got three chapters in and realized this was not going to get any less interesting. So I had to put it down. So I didn't actually get to the lawsuit, but it's, it's one of those books that sort of, and this is the kind of, of, uh, of, of, uh, stick to itiveness that she would show when she stuck it to Shakespeare. So I'm, I'm sure there's going to be lots of adventurous stuff. And one of the other great things about the thing is that her lawsuit against him or her petition for a lawsuit where she went around to all of Shakespeare's neighbors in her crazy rough and stared at them with her basilisk eyes until they signed on to the lawsuit um, uh, is still in the records. And Shakespeare's response to the lawsuit is also in the records, except that's a forgery because someone who was looking at the record said, gosh, it's a shame we don't have Shakespeare's side of this lawsuit. I'll bet I should write it. And they <laughs> stuck it in. And so the whole case of the lawsuit has been thrown out of Orthodox Shakespearean history because it's irremediably tainted, they thought, by this fake response. Right. But it but turns out forgery that forgery does not eliminate the entire story. No, it does not, as it turns out. But the fact that it was an, a, a woman of contradictions, an educated, reactionary, Puritan, hardcore litigious crazy woman um does not she's not the kind of person whose history got to be told until we were uh really really into telling women's stories in all their glory as we are in this uh ad 2015 so um shakespeare and the countess is a great book about a great character 
and just being so horrible to Shakespeare that he's like, you know what? Screw it. We're going across the river. <laughs> we, we cannot live like this. Uh, so it's, uh, so it's a, it's a great, um, uh, work of 17th century or 16th century, uh, law and, and, and neighbors. And if, again, if you're in a, if you're in a homeowners association, you know, Elizabeth Russell. <laughs> yes. Uh, next up, we have a couple of items, which I don't know if we need to talk about at length, except to talk about the extent to which they underline the desire that I, and probably no one else has that, uh, fall of Delta Green have a Jim Steranko spy quality, and that's uh, Two Modesty Blaze books, The Impossible Virgin and The Silver Mistress by Peter O'Donnell. And these two paperbacks, first of all, exemplify uh, two different eras of uh, sexy paperback book covers. Uh, anything else that uh, we need to uh, mention in that context? I don't think we need to specifically mention the books themselves. They're Modesty Blaze Adventures, and Modesty Blaze is a, a wonderful uh, spy character, almost the only one of the post-James Bond spies that can sort of hold up her own head as an actual character as opposed to a cheap knockoff, um, partially because Peter O'Donnell is so crazy and partially because they began as novelizations of a comic strip, I think. And so he was... Oh, that might be unfair. I, I forget how it works, but the comic strip, he was very closely involved with as well. So there's a, a strong, as you say, visual component to Modesty Blaze uh, that there is not even to James Bond, although he had a comic strip too. Um, but Peter O'Donnell is a great writer. He has a great sense of character. Modesty Blaze is a great character. It's great fun to, to follow her around on her adventures with her crazy sidekicks. O'Donnell has the same sort of uh, Doc Savage problem where once you've made your hero omnicompetent, you have to figure out what to do with them. And he handles that pretty well. Um, and at, like you say, it's 60s spy fiction, which will feed into Delta Green. I agree with you that as much Steranko as we can get will be not enough, but I suspect we cannot get that much because the tone of Delta Green, sadly, is not quite uh, over the top 60s. I believe that it is under the rug 60s. And so that is just the way the world works. But if I can sneak a little Steranko in via Modesty Blaze, I will do it. Uh, next in the pile is the Pinkerton Casebook, Adventures of the Original Private Eye, edited by Bruce Dury. And this is basically Bruce Dury goes to the various books in which Alan Pinkerton tells his story of heroism and detecting from his uh, humble beginnings in Scotland to being at the right hand of Abraham Lincoln and much good that did Abraham Lincoln. And then into the, the, the great era of breaking union heads in the 1870s and 1880s. And Dury has, one assumes, gone through Pinkerton's uh, vast writings and sort of boiled them down and taken the fun and interesting and signal cases of Pinkerton and put them between two convenient covers, a Christomathy, if you will. Uh, next up, we have Terror Within, Terrorism in the Dream of a British Republic by Clive Bloom. And this is basically the uh, notion, uh, it's a book that exists to challenge the notion that Britain uh, never had any sort of domestic uh, uh, uprisings against it, that the British monarchy was beloved by everyone forever, uh, just like Victorian propaganda would have you believe, despite the fact that people tried to kill Queen Victoria like eight times. And so he talks about Welsh um, uh, nationalists and Irish terrorists and nationalists, and he talks about various Republican movements, including the, I think it's called the Cato Street Conspiracy, that tried to blow up George III and the whole cabinet in the uh, in the early 1800s. Um, it may not have been Cato Street, but it was a conspiracy, and they did try to blow up George III in the cabinet, and that's pretty exciting. And so, it, Clive Bloom is attempting to create a counter-narrative to the received narrative of 
British society having always been respectable and done the right thing under the lovely guidance of Her Majesty or Her Various Majesties and present it as, nope, it's a uh, naked power struggle just like everywhere else in Europe and indeed the world. And so as a useful corrective, it's good on that level. And also as a source of people I can turn into uh, gloves on the hand of Nyarlathotep, it's also good on the other hand, because who would want to kill Queen Victoria besides everyone in, in India or Ireland? I ask you. Uh, next up, speaking of tumultuousness, 1968, The Year That Rocked the World by Mark Kurlansky. And, and people who are uh, fans of sort of pop history know Mark Kurlansky's name very well. He did a history of cod and a history of the Basque people and a history of salt, I think. And uh, this is a history of 1968. And obviously that has huge relevance, not just for our own parlous times, but also, of course, for Delta Green, uh, the fall thereof, uh, because 1968 is sort of the... Um, what I want to say, the the, uh, the type year of what we think of as the 1960s with the urban riots and the craziness and student protests and tear gas and Vietnam and uh, all the music uh, that we think of as 60s is actually very, very late 60s music. Yes, there's actually three 1960s. There's three 60s, and this is the last and, and apocalyptic and noisiest one. of them. Yes. yes, so it could be called 1968, the year it all went sideways. Or 1968, Lovecraft's Apocalypse Made Flesh, or any number of things. But that is indeed uh, where we are going at it. And that, for example, is why I picked 1968 as the setting for uh, my latest Ken Writes About Stuff, uh, Las Vegas 1968, which is available now that you listen to it on the Pelgrane Press shop. And finally, one that I resolved uh, that I would take the time to flip through while uh, you had it on the table there, but I didn't because I was busy hanging out with you guys. The Esoteric Secrets of Surrealism by Patrick Le Petit. Uh, this, I gather, is a book that imputes uh, actual occultism uh, to the major figures of the Surrealist movement, uh, which is something that uh, we did in Dream Hounds of uh, Paris. So uh, on first glance, are there glaring things that we uh, failed to mention in that illustrious tome? Um, well, I mean, because Dreamhounds is not actually about the conventional occult, it's about the crazy Lovecraft occult, we did not mention things in that illustrious tome that we already could have mentioned that I knew even before having this book. Um, this gets, you know, ever deeper as the surrealists were very obviously aware of the occult. They were influenced by it because they saw it as another antinomian narrative that they could piggyback off of and also as a source of rich crazy people imagery, which was what they were all about. That was their jam. So this talks about um, Browner's tarot. It talks about uh, Picasso's Gnostic leanings. It talks about all kinds of other stuff that the various surrealists had going into their um, uh, stew, um, while I think probably not actually sealing the deal and saying that they were themselves occultists as opposed to people uh, with a wonderful occult understanding of the universe, which is, of course, the fun part. And that's right. why we still love the surrealists and don't love the symbolists who are, you know, just as goofy, but, you know, didn't have crazy um, uh, sorcery in them. Yeah, they didn't have quite as many awesome manifestos or street fights or all of those other things. Right. And it sounds like uh, the, the, the things that we didn't deal with in Dreamhounds are things that are outside the 20s, 30s. Uh, bracket like browner's uh, tarot uh, so we have uh, successfully pawed through this uh, vast pile of books and uh, therefore have pawed through our uh, first episode of the new year so uh, everybody thanks for listening uh, come on back and maybe maybe we'll just tell you about the other thing we saw at the royal college of physicians and hold on to your lymph nodes people. <laughs> yes because someone might want them yes <laughs> 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our Volvels turning by hitting the donate button at KenRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as... Rick Neal. Daniel Callahan. Samuel Kreider. And Samantha Perpich Harvey. Or possibly another Perpich Harvey, using her account, it's not entirely clear. Watch out for our Patreon. Coming, we promise, just as soon as we get some last stuff nailed down. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>